Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Marullo. Thank you so much for joining me again. Today we're going to be looking at a piano piece by one of the great masters ever. Now you're probably thinking it's got to be Bach, Mozart, or Beethoven. You're right, it's Mozart. We're going to be looking at his Fantasy in D minor, which was composed in 1782. He's about 26 years old, which was towards the end of his life. Mozart didn't live past the age of 35. Have you ever heard of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony? Schubert only wrote two movements of that symphony. Symphonic works are supposed to be at least three movements, if not four. So that's a a very famous symphony, not just because it's two movements, but it's one of his greatest symphonies ever, even though he only wrote two movements. Well, Mozart wrote other fantasies for piano besides this one, but this one is also unfinished. It concludes enigmatically on a five chord. And if you've ever heard any of my episodes from season one, or actually also this season, you know that a five chord is associated with tension. It's unresolved. You can't end a piece on a five chord. It would be like ending in the middle of a sentence without a period. So this piece is obviously unfinished. He just never got to the very ending, and who knows how he would have ended it. One of his students actually supplied the last ten measures, which kind of ties it up neatly, but we don't know exactly how Mozart would have finished this, because he ends on a five chord. Of course, Mozart's most famous unfinished piece is the last one that he wrote, a Requiem Mass. That's a mass for a funeral, mass for the dead. And It's ironic, mysterious, and even spooky that he died in the middle of writing a death mass. Sounds like the kind of thing a movie director would eat up, wouldn't it? Well, it was done. If you've ever seen Amadeus, that was a movie back in 1984 that won Best Picture, directed by Mios Forman. There's a big scene at the end where Mozart is composing the last few measures of his Requiem, but he never finishes it. Again, that was finished by one of his students. And you really know when you listen to the piece where Mozart's music ends and his students' composition begins. Not that the students' part is terrible, it's just that it's not Mozart. Only Mozart can write like Mozart. Well, one thing I think that you've learned if you've heard any of the prior episodes in this season is that a great composer, a genius like Mozart, can tie together a piece in ways that are very subtle and you don't immediately hear those relationships unless you take a magnifying glass and analyze the music. When you listen to the music, you say to yourself, oh, that's a great piece, I really like that. But there's a reason why it all holds together and it has the psychological effect that it has and why these pieces are thus remembered as not just fun pieces to listen to, but masterpieces of music. Now, I don't know if you heard episode 23 of season one, But that episode was about rhapsodies in general, and I opened that episode with this exact fantasy, Fantasy in D minor by Mozart. Although I didn't really get into it, I just gave you kind of a a general feeling of how the piece progresses. I played part of the beginning and part of the ending, and I didn't even mention that it was unfinished because I wanted to save it for this episode where we really get into the nitty-gritty of how it works and why it works. 
Now, as I discussed in episode 23 of the last season, a fantasy is like a rhapsody in that it's very improvisatory in nature. It doesn't have a set form. There's no formula that you have to adhere to when you write a fantasy. It's pretty free in form, whereas a piece like a sonata has to have certain sections, an exposition, a development, and a recapitulation, and usually a coda. And other pieces, for instance, the theme and variations, well, that's very formally strict because you have to have a theme and you have to have a set of variations, one right after the other. But with a fantasy, or later called a rhapsody, pretty much anything goes. But as a composer, when you're faced with writing a fantasy or a rhapsody, it's actually very challenging because you have so much freedom, you have to find ways to hold the piece together. It can't sound very chaotic, otherwise there's not going to be much of a cohesive quality to the piece as a whole. Well, the reasons why this fantasy in D minor holds together are not immediately apparent, but they are hidden there in the fabric of the music. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to play for you the slow, kind of somber, mysterious introductory passage. And then what I'm going to do is show you how it's reduced to its fundamental notes. Music theorists often do that. They, they do a reduction of the music to illustrate fundamentally what's going on either melodically or harmonically, taking away all the unnecessary notes. And not that those notes are not important, it's just that when you're doing a theoretical analysis, you want to get to the bare bones of how the piece works. Okay, so fundamentally, what we have in that introduction is a rising and falling. It, halfway through, it rises, and you think it's going to get to a certain note, but then it starts to fall. So let me play for you exactly what's going on there, note by note. What you heard in the beginning were piano arpeggios, which are broken chords. So the top note of the arpeggio is always the important one. That note that I just played at the end is the important one. So if I play all the important notes, it rises like this. And you expect it to go up one more note to A. And A is a very important note because that represents the dominant. And we do actually get that A at the very end of the passage, but it's very low. So what we have is a five-note scale climbing eventually to the note that is the dominant. And as you probably know, if you've listened to my podcast, the dominant represents tension. It's unresolved. So at the very end of this introduction, we have the dominant note and the dominant chord representing tension. But remember I said it climbs up in the beginning, but it doesn't quite get to that A. goes up four notes, doesn't quite get to the A, 
and then it goes down like this. So it descends five notes. And that last note that I just played is part of the dominant chord. It happens to be the third. Remember, triads are built from root, third, and fifth. That's why it's called the triad, three notes. Now the A that I talked about is the root, that's the first one, and the third is the C-sharp, which I just played. All right, so to sum up, we have a climb of four notes, wants to go to that fifth note, but we don't get that fifth note until the very end of the passage. So that's a climb of a fifth, that's the interval. But then it descends, it descends five notes which is also a fifth, all right? So in both cases rising, it's reaching for the A, which is the root of the dominant chord, and then when it goes down, it reaches the third of the dominant chord, the C sharp. So it's reaching up for the dominant, and then it descends, resting on another note or another factor of the dominant triad, the third. So this whole passage, all those notes, when they're rising, and descending, they are basically reaching for the dominant. This is just one big dominant chord. It's setting up a lot of tension in the beginning of the piece. So to sum up, the first thing that it does fundamentally is it climbs by step, D, E, F sharp, G. It wants to go to A, but it doesn't get to that A until later, actually in the 11th measure. And that spans a fifth, from D to A spans a fifth. Uh, but then immediately after that climb, it does climb down a fifth. So it goes G, F, E flat, D, C sharp. So really what's happening is it's going up a fifth, even though it's delayed, and then down a fifth. So that's important to remember. And remember, in the introduction, the fundamental goal of all of this is the dominant chord. And the very last note of the introduction is A, and A is the root. In other words, the bottom note of the dominant triad. Now I'm going to play you the first four measures of the main melody of this fantasy and then we're going to talk about it. Now let's first talk about what happens in the very first two measures of that melodically. So it begins with an F, and then a quick scale up, which spans a third, EFG. Now does that ring a bell? Do you remember from the introduction it was going up by step? and it ended up on a G, right? But it never got to the final note, A. What happens after that? It goes down a fifth and ends up on a C sharp. Well, if you remember, that's exactly what happened in the second part of the introduction, except it took a few measures for it to happen. This only happens in a couple of measures. So remember, in the introduction, it went from a G down to a C-sharp. A C-sharp is the third of the dominant triad. 
So in other words, what we have here in basically one measure plus one note is a microcosm of what happened in the entire introduction. Climbing up, landing on G, and then going down a fifth, landing on C sharp. That is fantastic. And you don't really notice it unless you have somebody like me to tell you about it. I mean, the average person is not going to listen to the introduction and, and then when they get to the melody say, oh yeah, that melody is just a microcosm of what happened in the introduction. It's not immediately apparent, is it? But that is just incredible the way his genius works. Now what happens in the next two measures? So there's that quick scale spanning a third again. And then it climbs down a fifth, just like before. That's five notes, it spans a fifth. And the first note of that was an A. And remember, A was the last note of the introduction, and A, of course, is the important root of the dominant triad. So what's happening in these measures is exactly what's happening in the introduction. The melody's climbing up and then climbing down, spanning a fifth. Now this melody, by the way, is constructed very conventionally in a question and answer phrase. Formerly they're called the antecedent and the consequent phrases. So first we have the question phrase. And then the answer. And in both cases, it's climbing up and then climbing down a fifth. That's called a sequence when the question and the answer phrases are basically the same melody, except the notes are a little bit higher or a little bit lower. It's a sequence, which is a repeating melodic pattern, but it's a transposed pattern, meaning the notes are not exactly the same. They're, in this case, a little bit higher. Now let's listen to what happens next. Okay, remember when I played the introduction, I also played a reduction of fundamentally what's going on? Well, let me tell you exactly what's going on here. I'm going to play it for you. Melodically, this is what's going on. Take a guess what that was. Yep, it was a scale spanning a fifth. It went down a fifth, just like it did in the introduction and just like it did in the question and answer theme that I played. So we have a recurring theme, don't we? We have a, a scale that's climbing, doesn't quite get where it wants to, and then it falls down a fifth. Over and over again, we're seeing this descent of a fifth. Now, remember when I played the, the question and answer theme, the main theme, there was also those quick three notes going up by scale that spanned a third. Remember that? Okay, keep that in mind. All right, let's see what happens next in the piece.
Did you hear what I did at the very end? That's going up and down by step, spanning a third. Well, that's what I played for you in the main melody. Those fast three notes span a third, and that's where he gets it from. See, with somebody like Mozart, something always comes from something before it. There's always a connection. It's a, a subtle connection. It's not something that you immediately would hear right away, but it's definitely there. Now let's listen to the next section. It actually cuts off very dramatically just like that. All right, let's listen to the beginning of that melody. That is spanning a third, right? Just like we heard before. Three quick notes, in this case going down, spanning a third. And then what happens after that? That is a leap down of a fifth. And there's that theme played out again of descending a fifth. Not by step, not by scale, but leaping a fifth. It happens to be something called a diminished fifth, but that's okay. It's still a fifth. Then after that, we hear a chromatic line. Chromatic meaning that it's going by half step. In other words, if you look at a piano, white key, black key, white key, black key. From the top to the bottom note spans, you guessed it, a fifth. And of course, going down a fifth has been a very important theme from the very beginning of this entire fantasy. It's almost like Mozart is plotting with the listener. I'm going to give you a new theme here, and a new theme here, and a new theme here. Just kidding, they're really based on the same idea. He's pretty cagey, that Mozart. He plants these little melodic seeds. It could be just, you know, a quick third spanning a third, or going down a fifth, and then he works with that. All right, I think it's time to hear a professional play up until that point, instead of me, who's really more of a semi-professional, at least at piano.
And you noticed at the very end of that excerpt, Mozart goes right back to that question and answer theme that he played in the beginning, except this time it's in a different key. The first time it was in the original key of the piece, D minor. Now it's in the key of A minor. What significance does A have? Yep, you're right. A has a lot of tension, right? Because A, I told you, is the dominant. It's the root of the dominant triad. So Mozart is setting up a lot of tension in this piece. Really, the only so-called stable part of the piece so far was the question and the answer phrase. It was a you know, standard antecedent and consequent phrase, but that didn't last very long because then the tension increased, and now we're in a foreign key, and that key, A minor, represents the dominant. Now, if you listen to my season one episode on Rhapsodies, I played uh, Mozart's D minor fantasy in the beginning, just parts of it. And if you did listen to that, you know that this piece actually goes into the major mode. Remember, it's in D minor, but then he goes into a very happy major mode. He goes into the parallel major. Parallel meaning same tonal center, different mode. So the parallel of D minor is D major, and the parallel of C minor would be C major. Now let's listen to this first D major theme. Remember towards the beginning of that theme, you heard this? And then... You can probably guess at this point what I'm going to say. Yeah, those two melodic segments span a fifth, from the top to the bottom note. That's a fifth. And then right after that, you have two notes played at the same time, which again span a fifth. Also, you notice when I played that melodic figure, there was a scale at the end. Those last three notes. Well, that's also been a theme. If you remember when I was talking about the D minor section, he did that quite a lot, spanning a third by scale. So everything ties together. Now remember I told you Mozart himself didn't finish the piece. He ends on a dominant seventh chord. And remember, a dominant chord is laced with tension, so you can't end the piece on a dominant chord. He meant to finish it. But the thing is, his student completed the entire piece in the key of D major. And I'm just wondering, if Mozart had finished this, I wonder if he would have gone back to D minor. Maybe possibly he would have gone back to the music of the introduction, well, we'll never know because his students supplied the last few measures and just ended it in D major. But uh, knowing Mozart, he would have done something quite different. It's possible he might have still ended in D major, but he would have done something different, quite different than what his student did. Now, a lot of people might wonder, all these relationships, all these thematic relationships and melodic cells that I've been talking about, was Mozart aware of them? In other words, when he sat down to compose, did he say, okay, I'm going to base this piece on a span of a fifth? Um, that's really not the way composers work. Composers certainly know about music theory, but for the most part, especially a genius like Mozart, he just sits there, composes off the top of his head. In Mozart's case, a lot of times he wrote the music in his head, and it was all finished, and then he would just write it down. 
and that goes for his orchestral works as well. He could actually imagine a piece, an entire tapestry of music, all orchestrated in his head, and then he just writes it down. Incredible, and he also did that as a kid. I'm sure you know he wrote quite a lot of music as a child. He wrote his first opera at the age of 12. At the age of 12, I was playing Atari. (laughs) But then I started taking piano lessons not long after that. So these relationships that we're talking about, they just arise out of the fabric of the music, of the musical intellect. And when you have somebody like Mozart, as talented as he is, he doesn't even have to try. They just come right out of the music as if he planted a seed and everything just happens naturally. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, I could go on and on about Mozart, uh, but I'd keep you up all night. So I better end it here. But I hope to see you next time, because there's one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.